past week at uh, Bible camp, our theme is uh, fact checking. Our theme was fact checking. Our t-shirts uh, on the front has a little magnifying glass as if you're searching for clues. And on the back, um, it's got the Bible verse, Acts 17, 11, and 12. We'll start there uh, this evening, Acts 17, 11, and 12. We'll be bringing that out in just a second. I want to use some of these thoughts from Bible Camp to speak about and discuss with you owning our own faith. Owning our own uh, faith. That's really what about, uh, that's really what uh, fact checking is all about, is owning our own faith. And being willing and ready to search the Word of God. Search the Word of God. What I did last Sunday evening with, with our little ones was I got up at Bible camp of all places and I carried my tie with me and showed uh, the kids how I could tie a tie. But I explained that I didn't always know how to tie a tie. That my dad taught me to tie a tie. And I worked with him and watched him and practiced with him. And then I practiced some more. And now I can do it almost blindfolded. I can do it second nature uh, to me. And I used that ideal to think about how that, that is really the goal uh, that God wants us to reach, and that is to be able to stand on our own two feet and serve Him and have our own faith, have our own faith. Acts 17, 11, and 12, Luke records for us concerning the Bereans he says, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they searched the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Not everything heard religiously is so. Not everything is true. And they received the word with all readiness of mind, it says there. And that was the idea that we're trying to express this past week. And we're trying to to uh, emphasize this evening, to search the scriptures for ourselves, to see if these things are so, are so. A related passage is found in John 4:42 concerning that incident with the Samaritan woman, how that she went and encouraged her friends and family members to come hear Jesus. Come see a man who told me all things about myself, she says. Well, notice what her friends and neighbors said to her in John 4, 42. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves. That's it right there. That's the key. We have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Standing on our own two feet in faith. Owning our own faith. Turn with me quickly to Philippians 2 verse 12. You remember this verse because it says work out your own salvation uh, with fear and trembling. Notice how Paul begins the verse. 
Philippians 2 and verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, he says, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. See what Paul's goal was? He had been among them, and they had been learning. But his interest was that even when he's not there, they could stand on their own two feet in faith. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And jump back with me just one second as we talk about this to the book of Judges. All the way back to the book of Judges. But you'll want to see this. Joshua, Judges, Judges 2. You know the, you know the cycle there in the book of Judges. How that God's people in these dark times, they would start running after other gods and God would would punish them, deliver them unto their enemies, and then God would send a judge or a deliverer and help them out of their situation. But the, the, um, the cycle is really explained to us in Judges 2, 16 and following. Let's pick up and... Um, I'll just start in verse 17. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. And whenever the Lord raised up a judge, raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of their affliction, because they were afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever, and notice this, Judges 2, verse 19. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods. You see, they never really had their own faith. They were living on the faith and the courage of the judge. God was with the judge. But whenever that judge would die there, they go again right back into their corruption. See how important it is to own our own faith, stand on our own uh, two feet. And so this evening together, I want to just review a few areas of concern that will help us to do what we're thinking about, owning our own faith. And we approached it this past week with the kids, and it's kind of interesting to approach the scriptures, the truth, as kind of a mystery to be solved. Kind of a mystery to be solved. And I asked the boys uh, in my class this past week to put on their detective hat and to get ready because God wants us to search the truth. God's, God gives every one of us the ability to search out the truth. I shared with them this story. I don't know if I've ever shared this with you, but back in, when I was in middle school in Jasper, Alabama, I was playing in a basketball game down, downtown at the middle school, and it, was, it had to be very exciting because we were out there playing. But my, uh, my mom and sister and brother were in the stands, and, and during the game, there was a huge explosion that shook the gymnasium. And come to find out, um, 
about three blocks from the middle school was, um, it's not there anymore, but it was called People's Hospital. And a nurse during that afternoon game, she got off her shift and she went to her car and as she turned the ignition, her car blew up into many pieces and killed her instantly. That crime has never been solved. People came from all over the country to look into this crime. And as far as I know, that has never been solved. Scared the community uh, to death. It was, it, was, it was talked about for many, many uh, years. We've got to put on our detective hat and search out the clues that God has left us to find out the truth about various matters. And so we'll notice, you know, three or four areas that, that are of concern. First, let's think about heaven. Is there really a place called heaven? And why should we want to go there? And then how should uh, how is it that one arrives uh, in heaven? So is there really a place called heaven? And looking out in the scriptures, we can find Colossians 1. Let's turn over there. Colossians 1. And notice Paul's remark about heaven. In Colossians 1, verses 4 and 5, you'll notice he describes his hope. And as he describes his hope, Actually, beginning in verse uh, 4, he talks to the brethren. He says, Colossians 1, 4, he says, Since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and the love that you have for all the saints, why? Because of the hope that's laid up for you in heaven. Their hope in heaven had motivated them to have faith in Jesus Christ and love for the brethren and the other, or the other saints. Because of the hope that's laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. And so, yes, there is a place called heaven. And I wanted to also ask the class uh, this, and that is, why would you want to go there? Why would you want to go there? In our first week of camp, this, uh, this young fellow, 17 years old, he kept saying, I just don't want to go to hell. That's why I want to go to heaven. I just don't want to go to hell. He kept saying that, so we jumped over and looked at a few scriptures uh, about hell, but I didn't want them to stop there. What is, what do you think? What do you think? What is the greatest reason you want to go to heaven? Why do you want to go to heaven? That's where Jesus is. That's it. That's where Jesus is. And that is emphasized more uh, in scripture, I think, concerning heaven than anything else. Remember Jesus and John uh, 14, 1 through 3, in my Father's house are many mansions. I go and prepare a, place, prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. Unto myself. What did he say, Jesus, on the cross? What did he say to the thief that repented, that turned from his sin? Today you will what? Today you will be with me. Today you will be with me in paradise. When Stephen was being stoned, jump over in your Bibles to Acts 7 and notice his prayer in Acts 7, verse 59. As he's about to die, as he's being stoned, notice he prays to Jesus and says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. When we die, when we die, not our body, but 
our soul goes to be with Jesus. That's the greatest thing about heaven, is being with uh, Jesus. Now, another young lady in class, she, she wanted to talk about how great heaven's going to be, and there's going to be no suffering there, and that's certainly true. Romans 8, verse 18 says, Paul says, I reckon that the sufferings of this present world are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed on that day? Absolutely. There's no comparison uh, from this life to the next. Uh, the next life will make us forget the sufferings we had to endure uh, in this life. Okay. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. But that being said, still, there's nothing like being with the Lord. The more you get to know the Lord, the more you get to know Jesus, then the greater your desire is to be uh, there with Him. You remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 6 through 8. He says, while we're at home in the body, then we are away from the Lord, but we walk by faith, not by sight. Willing rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord when he talks about being at home with the Lord, it means to be face to face with the Lord. When we leave this body, we'll be face to face with the Lord. That's the best thing about heaven. That's the best thing about heaven. Remember what Paul says in Philippians 1, 21 and 22, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. I have a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. That's Philippians 1. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. But nonetheless, Paul says, that's where I want to be. In 1 Thessalonians 4 and 17, Paul says, at the, at the second coming of Jesus, we will be called up in clouds uh, with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. That word with just keeps coming up again and again about heaven. To be with the Lord, with the Lord. You go all the way over, over to Revelation 3, 20 and 21. Jesus said that he overcame and he was able to sit down with his father at the throne. And so if we will overcome, if we will endure in our faith, so we can sit down with Jesus at his throne. Can you believe that? We'll be able to sit down with Jesus. So that's the greatest thing about heaven. And how do you get there? Well, through the blood of Jesus, the power in the blood. Revelation 7, 13 and 14. Who are these who have come out of a great tribulation? The question is asked in heaven. Who are these people? These are those who have had their robes washed and made white in the blood of the Lamb. We contact that blood through gospel obedience, through being baptized into the death of Jesus, Romans 6 and verse 3. We are washed. You know, when, when Saul of Tarsus obeyed the command. Ananias said to him, Why do you tarry? Arise and be baptized. Wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Acts 22, 16. Then he was washed with the blood of the Lamb. So that's, that's just a few thoughts about heaven. A little, a little some, some clues that God has left us to show us that there is indeed a heaven and there's a great reason to be there and there's a way of getting there. 
being involved in what Jesus did for us on the cross, plus being faithful unto death, Revelation 2, verse 10, then we will one day arrive in heaven. Here's another subject to think about. And on Tuesday of camp, we thought about this question. Why are there so many churches? Okay. In our fact-checking, our first day of fact-checking was simply, what about the truth? What about the truth about heaven? What's the, what about the truth about hell? But then the second day was, well, what's the truth about church? Why are there so many churches? Okay. And so as you investigate, you can ask some questions. Okay. First question we wanted to ask, which we did ask, is this. Is there a pattern there in the New Testament? Did God actually set up the church, and is it clearly seen? Is there a pattern? Well, as you know, in Matthew uh, chapter 16, when Jesus said, Upon this rock I will build my church, the rock itself is a, is a clue, because the rock that Jesus is talking about there is Peter's statement, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Peter basically makes that same statement on the day of Pentecost, the day the church was set up. Okay. He makes that same statement. He says in Acts 2 and 37, This Jesus whom you cru crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. See, So that rock there that Jesus mentions is a clue as to when and where the church uh, would be set up. Also in Matthew uh, 16, Jesus said to Peter, I will give unto you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And we see it's Peter standing up, Acts 2.14, with the rest of the apostles, and he preaches about Jesus, and he uses the knowledge that God has given him there on the day of Pentecost to open the doors with the keys. And so the keys themselves are another clue as to as to where and when the church would be, would be set up. And these little boys, they saw it right away. They were excited about it. They were writing in their Bibles. They're underlining their Bibles. Some of them were, were taking notes. They were not going to sleep. Another little trail that takes you to the setup of the church begins in Mark chapter 9 and verse 1 where Jesus said to some of his uh, disciples, he says, I say unto you, there's some of you standing here who will not taste of death until you see the kingdom of God come with power. That's a big statement there. We see here from Mark 9 verse 1 that the kingdom is coming. Okay. We also see the kingdom is coming during the lifetime of these men Jesus is talking to. Okay. And also when this kingdom comes, it's going to come with power. With power. And so you just kind of trace that out. Look in your Bible to Luke uh, 24 and notice some of the last statements made in Luke 24. Jesus is now been risen from the dead. He's given the great commission here in Luke uh, 24 and then he gives uh, some further uh, instructions to them. Notice in verse uh, 48 he says to his apostles, you are witnesses of these things and behold, I am sending you the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city, the city of Jerusalem, until you are clothed with power from on high. So see, the kingdom was going to come when the power 
comes. And this power involved the promise of the Father concerning the Holy Spirit upon the apostles. And so there you just turn over to Acts 1 and verse 8 and notice more about this coming power. Jesus says in Acts 1 and verse 8, but you will receive power to his apostles. He says you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses beginning here in Jerusalem. So the kingdom would come. It's coming. It's coming during the lifetime of his apostles and it's going to come with power. Where would this power come? It's going to come while they're in the city of Jerusalem. And what's going to be involved with this power? Well, it's going to involve the the manifestation, the, the dramatic coming of the Holy Spirit upon the apostles. The coming of this Holy Spirit upon the apostles would qualify them to teach the truth without error and to do signs to confirm that truth. And so you simply turn over to Acts 2 and verse 4 then and notice that it's on the day of Pentecost that this power, the Holy Spirit, comes upon the apostles. It's also on that day that Peter stands up and preaches. He talks a lot about Jesus, the life of Jesus, the suffering of Jesus, the death of Jesus, his resurrection, his exaltation, his being exalted on the right hand of God, God making him both Lord and Christ. They said, what shall we do? Peter said, repent and be baptized. And then those who gladly received that word were added, added unto them, added unto the church. That's not hard, is it? Did God actually set up the church? Can that be clearly seen? Is there a pattern there? Yes, uh, there is. In our investigation about why there are so many churches, we asked this question also, why can't people see the pattern? If it's that obvious that eight 12-year-olds and nine 16 and 17-year-olds can sit at a little corner in East Tennessee and can see it plainly, then why can't the world, why can't people see this pattern? Why is there such confusion? And they, I asked the class this, and, and what would you say, first of all? But little Liam Cook on my left, about barely 12, if he was 12, but short, as short can be, he looked up and he says, because people want what they want. And I thought, that's it. He's been listening. He's been observing. Okay. And then after he said that, we turned over to Romans 10 and verses 1 through 3. Well, Paul talks about his Jewish brethren. He said, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And he said, in their zeal without knowledge, they, they end up creating a righteousness of their own and not according to the righteousness of God. That's exactly it. They wanted something they wanted. Okay. And so that's one reason. People want what they want. That's going to be, that's always been a problem. That's the, that's the root of sin, is to want what I want. I want a church like I want it. And I'm going to go find a church like I want. But God gets left out of that equation. And the second reason that people can't see the pattern is because they don't know 2 Timothy 2.15. We looked at that. Okay. Where Paul says, do your very best to present yourselves a, a workman uh, unto God. Um, 
And then he says, rightly dividing the word of truth. People don't know how to rightly divide the word of truth. It's not that hard, but just not understanding the fact that the old law has been nailed to the cross and that there's an Old Testament and New Testament. And I always ask uh, the little ones, you know, are we to build an ark today? Are, are we to, are, shouldn't we be bringing uh, animals to sacrifice when we worship this evening? Why aren't we doing that? Just simple questions. And it's obvious that there are parts of the Bible that no longer pertain directly to us. That the New Testament is our system, is our law today. And we repeated this a lot. And that is, the old law is for our learning, but the new law is, uh, but the new is, for, is our law. The Old Testament is for our learning, but the new is both for our learning and it's our, it's our law today. Okay. So we just don't rightly divide the Word of God. And another reason people can't see the patterns is because they focus more on their feelings than their facts. Okay. They emphasize facts over feelings. That's, that's bad. Okay. That's what happens. God's given us self-control and we can, we can organize our thoughts. We can have... We can have control of our feelings as, we, as the truth is, is right before us. We all remember what, what Paul said as he reflected on his life. Acts 26, verse 9. He said, I, at one time I verily thought that I should do all things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He just thought that. He had been led to believe that. That's what he felt, that, that he was supposed to work against Jesus. But he was just sincerely wrong. He found... He found that out. Sometimes it's also tradition over truth. So facts, feelings, feelings trump facts sometimes, and sometimes traditions trump uh, truth. Sometimes we just don't know how to divide the Bible out correctly, and sometimes, really, most of the time, we just want what we want. But our aim is to please God. And so we ask these questions about, you know, did God actually set up the church? Why, people, why can't people uh, see this pattern? And then what are some major differences between those who hold the pattern and those who do not? And our class presented three really fast. The taking of the Lord's Supper, the teaching of baptism, and uh, the idea of musical, uh, mechanical musical instruments being used in some places. I told them the story of studying with an older gentleman and he was not far from death but uh, I got to study with him and he asked me some questions and he wanted to know more about the Lord's Supper. He, he asked, um, he said, I know you take, y'all take the Lord's Supper every first day of the week. He said, I never have understood that. And he had his Bible. I said, well, turn over to Acts 20 and verse 7. And he turned over there and he read it. I asked him to read it. He read it. He looked at me. And then he read it again. And then he called for his wife. He said, bring me the phone. Bring me the phone. She brought the phone. And right there in my presence, he called his, his pastor. And with a pretty firm voice, he said, I'm sitting here reading Acts 20 and verse 7. And why, is it, why haven't you ever shown me this verse? Why haven't we ever discussed the Lord's Supper and how often they took it? And so I told them that story. Well, there are some major differences, glaring differences, between those who hold the pattern and those 
who do not. And so those are some discussions and some, and some investigations we can do about why there are so many uh, churches. Let me mention uh, one or two more areas here. What about, what about forgiveness? Is that really important? Is it really important to forgive someone else when they have wronged you? Did Jesus ever say anything about that? That's one of our primary questions for the Wednesday of our camp week. What about forgiveness? What about forgiveness? Do I really have to forgive? What happens if I don't forgive uh, the other person? What happens then? Well, of course, we read from Matthew 6, Jesus teaching us to pray. Matthew 6, verses 9 through 15. You know in that prayer, he says uh, that we ought um, to pray to God, forgive us of our debts as we forgive those who have transgressed against us. And the comment is made there by Jesus, if we forgive not those who have sinned against us, our Heavenly Father will not forgive us of our transgressions. But the beginning of that prayer is very important. Jesus teaches us to pray, our Father who art in heaven. We can't call on God as our Father unless we are first His child. And so, first of all, we discussed how do you become a child of God? And naturally, we would read such passages as Galatians 3, 26 and 27. We're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus, for as many of us as were baptized into Christ did put on Christ. And so, first of all, you've got to make sure that you have received forgiveness first. But if we have received forgiveness from God, then we have to extend that same mercy and, and long-suffering, that same compassion, same forgiveness to other people as well. And Jesus said, if we're not willing to do that, then you can't count on being forgiven by God. And I asked uh, the fellows in class, I said, what happens if you're not willing to forgive someone else? Then they said, God will not forgive you. Well, if God won't forgive you, then where are you going to be in eternity? And they said, well, we won't be in heaven, will we? Okay. One time Jesus said in John 8, 24, if you believe not that I am, I am he, you shall die in your sins. If we don't believe what Jesus says, then we're going to die in our sins. Many people even now are holding things against someone else. And they're doing this just as if they, just as if they think they're going to heaven, but it's just not going to happen. It's not going to happen. The Lord is too plain here, too, too, speaks way too uh, plainly. What else will happen? I asked the class, what else will happen if, you don't, um, if you're not willing to forgive another? And they said, well, uh, one boy said, you become all sour. I said, that's it. That's it. You become sour on life. The, the Bible calls that bitterness. You become bitter and you'll become angry and you'll become uh, sad and depressed. And it's no good for you to, to hold on to a grudge against uh, someone. And um, it really surprised me how willing uh, they were able to talk about that, how, how much ability they had to, to actually express uh, the words concerning this forgiveness. Okay. So yes, forgiveness is required because God has first forgiven us, Ephesians 4, uh, 31 and 32. Let all bitterness be put away from you with all malice and with all 
wrath and be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted one to another, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. It just, it just can't miss it, can you? Just can't miss it. One other area. What are we doing? How do we own our own faith? Okay. What do we, how do we own our own faith? We just investigate. We investigate these areas of concern. Is there really a heaven? Why are there so many churches? Is forgiveness really that important? Let's look at one other area. In that. That's concerning Jesus. How, how do you know? How do you know that you know that Jesus is the Son of God? What makes you believe? If, some, if someone was asking you, uh, prove to me that Jesus is the Son of God, what would you start to say? Well, of course, with the, with the guys we discussed, John uh, 20, 30, and 31, where it says Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. But, but these are written down so that you might believe that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We discussed a lot of his miracles. What's your favorite miracle that Jesus did? What, what's the one miracle that sticks in your mind? Did Jesus raise the dead? Did Jesus raise Lazarus? Lazarus? Did Jesus raise anybody else from the dead? What about the miracles that Jesus did? What sticks with you the most? Well, all these miracles are written that you might believe. Do you believe that these miracles are sufficient to lead someone to faith? And they ought to be. All right. So his miracles. But another thing they said was his teaching. His teaching. And my favorite, one of my favorite portions of the life of Christ is, is found in John 7, 32 to 45 and 46, where the Jews had decided to go and arrest Jesus. So they sent a, a group of men to go arrest him. They found him. They came back and didn't have him. And the officials, the leaders of the group said, why didn't you bring him? And they just simply said, John 7, 45 and 46, no man has ever spoke like this man. No man has ever so spoken. Okay. They heard him speak about the truth. They heard him speak about forgiveness. They heard him speak about godly living. They heard him speak about, about heaven. They heard him speak about the Old Testament. They had never heard such knowledge. They had never heard such teaching this has to be someone uh, special. And so not only the miracles that Jesus did, but also his teaching, his knowledge and teaching, his compassion. And I asked the class, I said, well, what's, a, what's, an, what's an example of Jesus' compassion? They almost all said, that he, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do while he was hanging on the cross, Luke 23 and 34. His compassion, of course, also his fulfillment of prophecy, and of course, his resurrection. So these five levels of evidence, these five shells of evidence, his, his miracles, the prophecies, his compassion, his teaching, and his resurrection all show that he is indeed the Son of God. What about the resurrection of Jesus? What questions should you ask? And we went through this on Thursday afternoon in class. First question is, did he actually die? What evidence is there that he actually died? Secondly, was he actually buried? Who was in charge of his burial? Was this place well known to everybody? And of course it was. Joseph of Arimathea was in charge of the burial. On, 
on Sunday morning after Jesus died on Friday, was the tomb found empty? Was it found empty? Of course, it was, and we looked at that. And then the fourth question is, is there any record that Jesus actually appeared to people after his resurrection? And of course, we looked at the passages that show that he appeared to this one and that one, to over 500 brethren at once in 1 Corinthians 15. You see how that with just asking a few questions and looking at a few scriptures, we ourselves can investigate, we can see for ourselves, we can hear for ourselves, we can stand on our own uh, two feet, we can, we can be who God wants us to be. This morning we were talking about how that parents and their children have a special relationship. Psalm 127.4 says, As arrows in the hand of a mighty man, so are the children of youth. What is our aim for our children? Well, we're talking about it tonight. That they can have their own faith. Not rely on mom. Not rely on dad. Not rely on this religious leader. Not rely on grandpa. Not rely on somebody on YouTube. Not to rely on some pastor here or there. Certainly not your preacher. To do as they did in Acts 17, 11, and 12. To search the scriptures daily to see whether these things are so. That's, what, that's our aim. That's our aim. That's, that's our work. That's what we, we seek to do. Stand on our own two feet. When I learned to tie a tie, I didn't have to have somebody else to come and tie it for me. I was so happy about that. And secondly, if I had not learned to tie the tie, I could not blame anybody else for that. It would be my fault because I had not paid attention or I had not practiced enough but it wouldn't be somebody else's fault. I wouldn't go looking for somebody else to blame because I could not tie a tie. It would be all on me. That's the way it is. That's the way it should be spiritually as well. Owning our own faith. There's so much more we could say about this, but we at least have been able to introduce the thought and perhaps we can grow in grace in knowledge. As always, as we are together, we want to take the opportunity to think about our Lord Jesus and to see where we're at in our relationship with Him. What is the invitation song? That's what I thought it was. How thine own way. As I heard that invitation song announced, I thought about little Liam over here. When we ask the question, why don't people see it? Why don't they see the pattern? We've been able to see it. And he said, they want what they want. But this is a great song that we're about to sing. How thine own way. That's the biggest difference between those who actually go to heaven and those who will not. Will you come as we stand, as we sing?